Um, welcome this morning, everybody. Hopefully you all had a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, everybody recovering from our tryptophan comas. So this morning I get the uh, honor of continuing this series. I guess this is the last in our four series. Well, we've been talking about basic Christian doctrines and why we do certain things. And today I'm going to talk to you about why we give, why we tithe. And whenever I'm faced with a question like that, the first place I always go to is I look to God. And I say, what is the nature of God? And so normally when we begin to think about God, if we ask that question, who is God, most of us would probably say, well, God is love and God is holy. And we might have a number of ideas that come to mind. But I wonder sometimes if when we think about the nature of God, if one of the first things that comes to our mind is the fact that God is very giving. Matter of fact, we'll start off with our first scripture in John 3.16. Everybody's familiar with this, but I want you to take special note of it. it. The Bible tells us, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute, right? We're all familiar with this verse, and normally we immediately run to the end part that he gave his only begotten son. And we think about Jesus, and rightly we should. But I want you to understand the nature of God is giving. And that giving isn't just something he does immediately. If you really stop to think about it, and we're going to talk about that today. When God gives, sometimes it takes a long time for the entire process to be fulfilled. He doesn't do something just give like when we go to Christmas or whatever, we give somebody a present and we're done and we go on. God's giving is really very unique in how he structures it and how he makes everything work. Matter of fact, if you consider just the creation, and this is one thing you can see, somebody who is a really good giver gives gifts that give. Think about that for a second. God gives gifts that give. So, for example, when he gave us the sun, it wasn't a one-time thing. It was something that goes on forever and ever. And not only that, we get heat from that, we get life from that, all of the photosynthesis on the planet, that giving wasn't just a one-time effort. The same thing where it says, for example, he gave us plants to eat. Just imagine if he just created a bunch of plants and that was all there was. No, the plants are able to reproduce and they continue to give over and over again. And you're going to see in the very nature of God this whole idea of giving. And that's our first answer to our question. Why do we tithe? Why do we give? We give because God gives. And if you begin to look at the story of redemption... God starts off with a guy by the name of Abraham, and he promises him a number of things. He gives him a land, he gives him an inheritance, and he gives him a son. And through that, he begins a process where he creates a nation, and the nation then goes into slavery into Egypt, and he releases these people who are in bondage, which is symbolic of all of us and our life in sin, right? And he wants to create a process, but to do that, he has to teach us how to give. He can't just give to us without us understanding the entire process of what it means to give. And if you consider human nature, what are we all like? Are we naturally very giving? No, we're very selfish, right? One of the first things we learn is what? Mine, yeah, <laughs> right? It's like, that's my toy, that's mine. And all we have is our own internal perspective, right? We can't think about other people and we have to be taught to do that. And in the same way, God is going to do that through his redemptive process. And we're going to look at two special cases. 
about how God demonstrates his giving. And what you see in the whole process, for example, when he brings them out of Egypt, he's going to give them their freedom. He's going to give them wealth. He plundered Egypt. And when we think about plunder, it didn't mean that he just gave, they took all the gold and silver. No, the people were turning over all their jewels, all their clothes, uh, bolts of cloth, great big pieces of, of you know, tanned hides, and all of that. I mean, they literally... God gave them the wealth of Egypt, if you can imagine that. When they, they were an incredibly poor people, they were slaves. They had nothing, and now they had everything. God was going to give them a land where they didn't have to build a house. They just had to move in, right? There was furniture, there were plates, there were fences. Everything was already taken care of. That's the giving nature of God. And so um, in the two stories that I'm going to use as examples about how God proceeds to teach us, and he proceeds to teach his people, Israel, about the giving process, I want you to notice two things. And this is something that kind of is inherent in human nature. In human nature, in the whole idea that we want what is mine, we kind of have two frames of reference, because nobody likes to hear about giving, right? This is probably one of the worst topics anybody could talk on. <laughs> so glad I got that one right on the draw. <laughs> but what happens is sometimes we don't have very much, and when we don't have very much, we want more, and we're, we're always worried about where the next thing is going to come from, right? <clears throat> so we only know scarcity, and we have this fear of not having enough. And then conversely, if you get to the point in your life where you have developed some wealth, your mind then turns to, I don't want to lose any of my wealth, right? I'm afraid of losing it. In both cases, God is going to address this inherent fear that all men have, whether rich or poor. And I want you to see it in these two examples. So the first example, when God begins to teach Israel about the nature of giving, he basically creates bread from heaven that he calls manna. And manna is an interesting word. What it means is, what is it? Right? So if you've ever been a bachelor and one of, you, know, you have other roommates and somebody makes something and puts it on the table and you go, what is it? You're basically calling that manna, right? That's the Hebrew word for that. What is this stuff you're trying to give me? But interestingly enough, it is the bread from heaven. And if you look at our scripture in Exodus chapter 16, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather day's portion every day, so that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening, you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your grumblings against the Lord, what we, <clears throat> and what we that you what is it that you grumble against? The sons of Israel did so, and some of them gathered much and some little. When they measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered as much as he would eat. So a couple things I want you to understand. The first thing is this whole idea about God giving bread from heaven. That's very significant. And we're going to see that especially in the New Testament and Jesus. But there was something the people of Israel began to grumble. It's like you took us out of Egypt and now we're not going to have enough. See this fear, right? I need something, right? I'm afraid I'm not going to have enough. And so God says, I'm going to give you enough and I'm going to give you a special thing, this bread that comes down from heaven. And it had a, pe a very peculiar property to it. Well, a, a kind of a very peculiar delivery system because every day, right, Sunday through Friday, it would rain down a portion. But on, I should say on Friday, 
they got twice as much. So on Saturday, the Sabbath, which they were required not to work, you didn't have to gather anything. So if you went out on Saturday, there wasn't anything there. But God would give everybody whatever they needed. And that's really important because in our desire to, uh, to overcome this fear of not having enough, God is going to teach us, I can supply it to you. And sometimes that fear of not having enough will cause some people to try to accumulate even more for themselves. Other people may be lazy and not accumulate very much. But the scripture very interestingly says that it didn't matter what you did. If you got a whole bunch, you had just enough. And if you only got a little, you had enough. So what is God trying to teach us? God is trying to teach us when he gives, he will always give you what you need, right? You're not ever going to be able to get more than you need necessarily, or you're never going to go hungry. But God will provide for you. And he had to teach his people this because this is an extremely important concept. You can't understand giving if you have either of these two fears. You have to be able to trust God. The second situation that he gave was a thing called first fruits. And first fruits is very interesting. He instructs them. <clears throat> matter of fact, let's look at this scripture in Deuteronomy 26. He says, Then it shall be, when you enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you take possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you will bring into the land that the Lord your God gives you. And you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. So basically in Israel, you had an interesting uh, growing season. You had two seasons. You had one in the spring and you had one in the fall. And so this whole idea of first fruits is God is going to provide and you're going to get some of the harvest initially and he wants you to give of that. Normally what we would do is we're, if you were in Israel, you'd say, I want to see how much I'm going to get in the whole take, right? In other words, how much is the full harvest going to give me? Then I'm going to figure that out because Israel was commanded to tithe that, to give a tenth portion of that. God says, no, I don't want you to give that way. I want you to give based on the first thing that I give you right? Because you're giving in hope of what is to come. Now, that's very instructive for us, but it's also instructive, and it alleviates this fear, right, that some people are going to be afraid who have a lot that I don't want to give up anything, right? I don't want to give more of what I have than I have to. God's saying, don't worry about that. I'm going to take care of you, and I want you to trust me. It's very important. <clears throat> um. The next thing that began to happen as Israel did these things and as God began to teach them about giving, pretty soon they became very wealthy. They became very successful. They became very affluent. And they would forget what God had done to them. And that's kind of human nature again, right? Why we do what we do in terms of, of giving. And so one of the things that began to happen, Israel just completely forgot God. And he tells them an interesting thing in Malachi and this is one probably none of us like to hear, but we're going to teach you the full gospel here. We don't shy away from anything that the word of God says. So in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, <clears throat> the prophet records God saying, he said, Would anyone rob God, yet you were robbing me? But you say, How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the entire nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and put me to the test now in this, says the Lord of armies. 
if I do not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. If you begin to pay attention to the way that God instructs us in giving, some things begin to happen to you, right? It begins to change who you are, and one of two things are going to happen. Either you're going to become more giving, or you're going to suddenly become greedy because now you have success. And we always have to guard our hearts that that doesn't happen to us that we don't take for granted what God has done for us. Israel had done that, and I find it interesting when he's talking to him. he declares himself the Lord of the armies, right? Kind of an interesting idea to put behind that. When I'm talking to you, understand that I'm not somebody to be messed with. I'm not some puny God. I have an army behind me, and I can enforce everything that I tell you. But that was never the heart of God to try to inflict injury on him saying, guys, I want you to learn to give because if you give, I can give more to you. It's always the way that God works. And you're going to see that, and Jesus reaffirms that whole principle over and over again. If you learn to give, God is going to give more and more to us. So in the New Testament now, let's look at some examples. And remember, we're going to review the same two things. We're going to look at the bread from heaven, manna, and we're going to look at first fruits. Let's start with the bread from heaven. Now, all of the people now are beginning to follow Jesus, and they're all aware of this great story in the history of Israel where God rained down manna. And so if you're a great person of God, you have to outcompete Moses. I mean, Moses gave us bread from heaven, right? And the people would begin to ask that. Well, twice Jesus does something very miraculous. He feeds the people, right? And he basically gives them bread to eat and meat to eat. He feeds 5,000 men, which means there were probably somewhere 10 to 12,000 people altogether. And then a second time, he feeds 4,000 people. Now, what's interesting about this is you see the great miracle and all that's happening, but I want you to notice something very interesting that happened in the hearts of the apostles. You would think that they were right there and seeing Jesus and all that, they, that he had done, that they would understand something about the nature of who Jesus is, right? And when you look at that, did you ever stop to think, why was there leftovers, right? When he fed the 5,000 and he fed the 4,000, they collected how many baskets? On the first, on the 5,000, they collected 12 baskets. And on the feeding of the 4,000, there were seven baskets left over. Now, Jesus is powerful enough. He could have created exactly the right amount of food. But he didn't. He created leftovers. Why did he make leftovers? Well, if you're like my wife, she loves leftovers. Right, if so, if I can have lunch tomorrow. <clears throat> but God is trying to demonstrate something to us. By the fact that there were leftovers, we know not only can God provide, but he can provide more than you need. That's really important, right? Because we have this fear that we're not going to have enough. Jesus is saying, don't ever be afraid of that. You will have enough in my kingdom. And so we look at a very peculiar story in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. And the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Typical for a bunch of guys, right? <clears throat> and he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet comprehend or understand? Do you still have your, in your, do you still have your heart hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? 
And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven and the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And he said to them, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? So an interesting story. He reminds them of the fact, first of all, they came and they didn't have any bread. Why didn't they have any bread? Aside from the fact they were a bunch of guys. There was plenty of leftovers and they should have brought that. But when they get there, they're beginning to worry. It's like, hey, we only have one, one loaf of bread. What are we going to do? Jesus is saying, weren't you here with me when I created this miracle? There was enough for everybody, guys. You don't have to worry about that. And perhaps sometimes when we get operating in the kingdom of God here in church, we forget, right? We're doing all of this for other people, and, and it can be a little overwhelming at times. But God is saying, I'm going to take care of you. There's going to be enough. You just have to keep your eyes open. Watch what Jesus is always doing, right? And we're going to talk a little bit that in terms of what's happening at this church. The second thing that happens is the Feast of First Fruits. And the Feast of First Fruits is very interesting. Remember I told you there was a feast in the spring and then there was a feast, well, not a feast in the fall, but there was a second harvest in the fall. And interestingly enough, do you know what day Jesus rose from the dead? On the day of First Fruits. It was the Feast of First Fruits. Now, why would he do that and why would he make this parallel to this whole idea of first fruits. It's because he's trying to sit back and tell us, guys, get ready. I want you to be thankful for what is coming, right? And I want you to base your giving on what you're going to see initially. And what did we see initially with Jesus Christ? We saw him raised from the dead. What is the implication of that for the harvest at the end? That means all of us get to rise from the dead. Amazing idea of what God is starting to wrap up when he started to say, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you my son. It was more than just his son. It's this whole idea that Jesus is the bread from heaven. He is more than enough for everything that we all need. Not only that, we should be a generous people. Why? Because we have been given so much. We have been given Jesus Christ. And based on that, we're going to now give. We're going to be a people whose hearts are changed because of that because we look forward to the latter-day harvest of what God is doing. Now, let's go back to our first question. We'll give you the second answer. Why do we give? This is a little bit more complicated. Giving is an act of faith based on our belief that God will provide. Okay, let me repeat that. Giving is an act of faith based on our belief that God will provide. Nobody likes to hear a sermon on giving, right? Like, I don't want anybody to tell me to give more of my time, more of my money, more of what I have, right? Because it's mine. And is it really? Does all this really belong to us? Not if you have the perspective of God, right? Who is it that provides for you? Who is it that gave you your job? Who is it that gave you your family? Who is it that gave you everything that you had, right? So when we give, all that we're doing is acknowledging the fact that God first gave to me, and I understand that. To withhold that is to acknowledge that God's not the source of all that we have. It's pretty clear. So in the Old Testament, were they instructed to give? Of course they were. In Exodus chapter 35, we read in verse 4, Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, 
whoever is of a willing heart is to bring it to the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, violet, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and fine leather, and acacia wood, and oil for lighting, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and the setting stones for the ephod and the breastplate. In other words, he's saying, I brought you out of Egypt. I've given you great wealth. I would like for you to make a contribution. Matter of fact, it's interesting. If you look at the verse, it says they were commanded to do this. But then it goes on. It says, but of those who had a willing heart, right? God is trying to tell us, look, I want you to give. But more than that, I want you to have a willing heart, even in the Old Testament. And they were commanded to tithe a portion of, of all that they received. And you see when Israel initially comes out, here they were a bunch of slaves. Here they were poverty-stricken. They had nothing. And they quite literally plundered the wealth of the rich, richest nation on earth. And when God says, will you contribute to the tabernacle? All of a sudden, the flood came in. They were so thankful they couldn't believe the change that had happened in their lives. One day they were poor and miserable. The next they were free and wealthy. Right? And so they came in and they brought a great multitude. And whenever any of us are part of a, a situation in giving at our church or whatever, and we see this, it's very inspirational. It motivates us to do more because we begin to see the hand of God. And the more we as a body give, the more it encourages, encourages us to give more and more. And the more that we begin to do that, the more that we have an impact on this world. <clears throat> in the New Testament, we see some ideas about giving but you're going to see something very different. In the, in the Old Testament, people were commanded to tithe, which means you give a tenth of all that you have. So if you had income, you gave of your money. If you had a wheat harvest, you gave 10% of that. If you were harvesting cattle, you gave 10% of that. Everything that you had, you were required to do that. In the New Testament, interestingly enough, you're not going to see really this command to tithe, even though this sermon is supposed to be about why do we tithe. And we're going to talk about that. And the question becomes that I, that I really want us to consider, who has more to be thankful for? The people in the Old Testament or the people in this church, right? The New Testament. All of us who are on this side of the cross. You're going to see a situation where Paul will begin to encourage the hearts and the minds of the church that, he, that he's working with. The particular passage we're going to look at next comes from Corinthians. And the church at Corinth had lots of problems. And Paul is trying to encourage them. He says, look, there's something terrible that's happening to the church in, in Israel. They were in extreme poverty, and they needed some contributions. And Paul was asking the churches, will you help? Will you be willing to contribute? Will you give to help these people? And he encourages them with a story about the church at Macedonia. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, he says, but just as you excel in everything, in other words, you guys are good at everything. It says, in faith, speaking, knowledge, and all earnestness, and in love, we inspired you. See that you also excel in this excellent work. What was the excellent work? The giving for the needs of the, of the uh, saints in Israel. I'm not saying this as a command, but, I am, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love as well. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. As it is written, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who had gathered little did not have too little. So let's break that down. The first thing he does is he really is encouraged by the church at Macedonia. And if you read in the scriptures, 
They gave out of their poverty. This was not a rich church. They were anxious to give because they understood some spiritual principles that were very powerful. And as a result, they were very blessed. And, and Paul used them to inspire the church at Corinth. And even more than that, he began to think about the fact that if you compare what God is asking any of us to contribute at any given time, is it greater than what he has done himself? When you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he give up? He gave up a throne in heaven. He became poor. I mean, literally poor. He didn't have a house. He didn't have a family. Don't know that he had a donkey, right? He didn't have a car, surely. But he gave up all of that. Why? Because that's his nature. He knows that if you give and you give with the right heart, it changes things, right? His giving allowed for the salvation of all of us. That's tremendous to think about, right? How much am I willing to give? Well, a little bit, maybe a little more. Okay, I'll go a little bit farther. Jesus Christ was willing to give everything. And Paul, when he considers that, I mean, we kind of jump to the end of the chapter, but he makes this comment. He's reminded of that passage in the Old Testament. Remember where we were talking about manna and the fact that God says, go out there and everybody gathered. And he says, those who gathered too much didn't have too much and those who gathered too little. And he's reminded of that. I find that very fascinating when he thinks about what Jesus has done. So what is it that he's saying? He's saying, when God loves you, does he love the people who do more? Does he love them more? No. Right? If I do more, will God love me more? No. He'll love you the same as he loves everybody else. Nobody has to worry that I'm not going to have enough in the kingdom of God. That's not how the love of God works. Because God gives. And he gives generously. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's an interesting thing to consider. Right? That God gives not only to people who are good, but he gives to people who are evil. That's amazing. We don't even like to consider that. But yet, that's the nature and the heart of our God. Paul goes on in Second uh, Corinthians in the next chapter. He says, Now this I say, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows generously will also reap generously. Each one must do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace overflow to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance of every good thing. Now think about that. Is that a contradiction with the previous verse? God is saying, those who gathered too little or too much did not have too much, and those who gathered too little. In other words, as a Christian, am I always going to be treated equally? Well, yeah, in terms of your fear of not having enough, God will give you enough, Right? But in terms of, of being able to do more, will God give more to those who do more? Yes, he will. Why does he do that? Is he trying to make them rich? Nope. There's lots of people in this church who should be filthy rich if that were the case, but that's not the case. Does this mean that God believes in the prosperity gospel? Nope. Because what's the problem with the prosperity gospel? If you can sit back and say, if I do these things, I can force God to react in a particular way, guess who becomes God? You do. So if you, reap, or if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. But if you sow abundantly, you'll reap abundantly. Why would God do that? Right? Is he trying, again, he's not trying to make you rich. The reason he does that is if you can learn the spiritual principle of giving, 
God will give to you so that you can give even more. Right? There isn't a limit. So when I sit back and tell you, <clears throat> in the New Testament, you're never commanded to tithe, a lot of people go, oh, great, I don't have to tithe. Look, tithing in the Old Testament was the limit on them. There is no upper limit in the New Testament. Right? So if you're looking, hoping to find a way out, that's not what the, the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches what? That God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, you're happy to do it. Why would you be happy to give what isn't mine? Right? We're, we're selfish people. Why would that make you happy? Why would that make you cheerful? It's because it changes your life. We're getting ready to head into the Christmas season. I encourage you all, watch uh, Charles Dickens. What's the Christmas Carol. Thank you, Dennis. Christmas Carol, what was that all about? It was a story about a man whose heart got changed. He went from wanting everything. He was afraid of losing what he had, right, and wouldn't give up a nickel of it. And yet his heart begins to change, and all of a sudden he experiences a life to the full that he never even understood was possible. I always find it interesting that sometimes Christians will, you know, just become discontent in their faith, maybe give up on going to church. It's like, I was promised all this stuff, but none of it ever came to pass. It's because you get what you sow, right? If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly, and pretty soon you're going to say, there isn't much to this thing called Christianity. But if you sow abundantly, God will bless you abundantly. And you have to understand that, and you have to believe that that is true. Now, when you look in the New Testament, you're going to see Jesus speaking an awful lot about money. And he doesn't tell people necessarily just to give money, but he's always talking about money from a heart issue. And one of the interesting passages is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There are certain things in all of our lives that are valuable to us, and probably nothing more so than our money. It's the most difficult thing to talk about. It's the hardest thing for us to give up because we hold that so near and dear. I mean, a lot of times, and I'm preaching to myself here, right? we believe more in our bank accounts than we believe in God, and that shouldn't be the case. We have to believe, we have to trust. Remember what I said? Giving comes from having this knowledge that God is going to take care of you, that God will provide an abundance. Either he is who he says he is or he isn't. And the only way you're ever going to find out is if you put him to the test and see. God's not afraid of that. Right? He will take care of you. He will watch over you. But Jesus, knowing this, right, he lived at a time now Israel is in great prosperity. And he sits back and says, you know, don't store, that's not where your treasure is. You know, I'm reminded of a story of this wealthy woman who had lots of money, but she wouldn't give to the church. And when she died, she went to heaven. And when she got up there, she didn't have a very nice house. And she said, what's the deal? I don't have a very nice house. He said, well, you didn't send very much up. Right? Is that true? Is that how it works? No, I don't think so. I'm just trying to bring a little levity. Right? <clears throat> but I do know one thing. At some point in our lives, all of us are going to die. What is it that we're going to be remembered for? 
Like, wow, he had a great golf game. Wow, you know, he was a lot of fun, right? I've been to some, some funerals. It's like, wow, they, were, they had great parties. It's like, parties, is that really what I want to be known for, right? When you get an opportunity to see, hear somebody say, your giving changed my life. That's an amazing thing to have somebody tell you. And that's what God is trying to do. He's trying to change our hearts. In Matthew chapter 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. How hard it is, right? We read about idolatry in the Old Testament. We think that if you make some kind of an image, right, why would anybody do that? <clears throat> and yet sometimes we make idols of our wealth. We live in an incredibly wealthy country. Right? We have more and more stuff, and we, we have something like Black Friday. We all head out trying to get the best deals, right? Got to have this, got to have this. But really, where, is our, uh, where are our priorities? Who is our master? Who really is our Lord? Do we really think that we can outgive God? I don't think so. Jesus will say something that's very interesting, and he says it three different times throughout the Gospels. He says, For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. He says this three times. One, he says in the, in the sower and the seeds. He says that at the end. And then two other times he uses that in relationship to parables that he's talking about money. And he does that because he's saying, <clears throat> um, if you think that you have enough in this life, you really won't, right? And it, whatever you have may be taken away from you. All of us live in uncertain times. Right? I'm reminded my mother-in-law was in a wreck. She could have lost her life. I have a brother-in-law who was sick. A lot of you have people who you've known that have had rough years this year. At any given time, life can change dramatically for any of us. And what really is important? Right? Where do we really put our treasure? Now, we probably need to address an elephant in the room. And I don't mean me since I eat too much turkey. But the elephant in the room is we're having this topic, we're talking about giving, and of course all of you know that we're working on a new building. So it's like, well, are we getting a sermon on giving because we need enough money uh, to build a new building? No, that isn't why you get the sermon. Brian does these a year in advance, right? But it's probably appropriate to talk about giving from time to time because it's in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. It's the nature of God. Are we building a new building? Yes. Do we need money? Yes. Does God need your money? No. God is doing something here. If you haven't been paying attention, that's quite remarkable. If you've been going to church for a long period of time, you see something different in here. There is community that's being built. And when we look around, I mean, we see so much good things happening. We have a number of babies that are going to be born into this church. We found out all the little toddlers and everything. We've got like 14 of them. We're busting at the seams with little kids. We have a church that's filled with old people. We have a church that's filled with little babies, right? God is starting to do something. But when you look at the news and you look outside, what do you see? You see chaos everywhere. I think God is doing something, right? We pray God put an end to this virus, put an end to all this stuff that's going on, bring unity to our nation, and maybe God is just giving us what everybody wants. 
right? This nation has turned its back on God. It doesn't believe that our abundance comes from him. We're just like Israel. <clears throat> when we were a young nation, we believed heartily that God gave us everything that we had. Remember the one nation under God? I don't think people think about that anymore. When we won World War II, we were very grateful to God. When 9-11 happened, we were thankful to God. We asked for God's divine protection for this nation. And now we despise God's presence. We don't want to hear from him anymore. We're just like Israel. We've forgotten where everything comes from. I hope that in this church, that's not true, right? We still honor God. We still preach his word. We're not afraid to preach the truth. We're not afraid to help the needy. And as we continue to do that, God is doing a great work. And what I can't help but think, and I'm just telling you this as an elder, I, I, I don't think we're building a building. I know we're not building, at least that's not my heart. We're not building that facility so that we can have a new fancy place. I think God is going to start doing something in the Boulder community where people are going to have lots of questions, right? They're going to have put their faith in the God of money, and it's not going to have done a thing for them. Their lives are going to be a mess. Their families are going to be a mess. Their kids are going to be a mess, and they're going to be looking for answers. We have a great opportunity, brothers and sisters. If God will continue to bless us with what he started to do, I mean, as elders, we saw a situation where when this uh, virus hit, we quite literally thought that all of this is going to be taken away. We basically got into the trenches and we came up with a plan to make sure that we could survive the worst that could happen to us. But something miraculous happened. <laughs> Sorry about that. I just remember those meetings. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, contributions started to come in. I want to thank the people who watch online. There have been some great contributions that have come in, and not just the regular giving. Gifts that are very large. Our, our accountant has said to us, um, I've never seen anything like this. Right? God doesn't need your money, but God wants you to learn to give. Why? Because we'll be a better church for doing that. Right? And if you sit back and you will act in faith, and you will open up your heart, you will open up your finances, you will open up your time and all that you have. God will bless us abundantly, even more so than he has been doing. So what are the practical steps? A couple things. One, we need to learn to give financially. Some of us don't give at all, and so I want to encourage you. Take a first step. Learn what that means. I understand that things are hard. I've been to the grocery store, and when you look at what the prices are doing and the inflation, it's like, I don't know how this is going to happen. Either we believe that God is going to provide, or we don't. But I encourage you, many of us here have done so in our, our lives. I mean, we're getting old. We've seen this. We understand what it was like to have high inflation. We understand when you could get a house loan that was 13%. Most of the younger people have no idea what that looks like. But believe me, if you can begin to take the process, it changes who you are. If you don't tithe, I'm going to ask you to consider tithing. Why? Because that's a good standard of where to go. Are we commanded to do that? No, God has just asked us to be generous. And so those of you who do tithe, I'm going to ask you to do more. Why? Why? Because the New Testament doesn't set a threshold. It doesn't set a cap. 
on what our giving should be. Some of us have been very blessed. And so we need to get behind what's going on here. If we really want to see the kingdom of God, if we really want to see something different than what we see out there, it requires us to open up our hearts and open up our checkbooks. I want to ask you, too, to give of your time. I want you to help. I want you to figure out ways to contribute at the church, right? Don't be just somebody who, who sits back and comes on Sunday and writes a check. That's not what Christianity is about. I want you to have people over for dinner. I want you to learn to be hospitable. I want you to learn to have some people who you have never had, who you've never met at church, have them over for dinner. You don't have to necessarily do it during the holidays. That's fine if you do. But get to know the people. Learn to be generous in everything. When you see somebody in need, help them. When you see the single mom at work who's having a hard time, and maybe you're going to get a Christmas bonus, I don't know, help them, right? It begins to change the world. If somebody's sick, go visit them. Giving isn't just a financial thing. It's a state of mind. It's a way that you look at everything that you do. And I know sometimes it's hard. It's like I've got a lot of things going on. I've got a lot of people pulling at me. I totally understand that. Right? Life is hard. We get to rest at the end. Not now. Remember to always give thanks. Be grateful for what you have. That changes your heart. Right? It's interesting in this nation that we have probably as one of our biggest holidays thanksgiving a time where we stop and acknowledge that god has given to us just like he gave to the forefathers who started this country right <clears throat> it changes our hearts the united states has been known as being being the most giving nation in the world i think it stemmed from this whole idea of thanksgiving and when we do that we help the whole world we have a, an opportunity to make a big difference we all want to see a better world nothing changes the world like the kingdom of god brothers and sisters Finally, I want to leave you with this last verse. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking. And I could say the same thing to all of us, including myself. Now, brothers and sisters, we make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches in Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave voluntarily, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. That's how I look at Rock Creek Church. I look at us as a generous church. I look at us as a giving church. We step in whenever the need arises, and we need to do that. And I'm convinced if we continue to do that, God will provide more abundance so we're able to complete that work. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are so giving. Thank you that you have blessed us with an abundance. Help us always in our attitude of giving to give to you first, to see you as the author and the source of all that we have. For we know that every good thing comes from you, and we're grateful to you. I pray that you continue to watch over us, watch over our hearts, our minds, 
Continue to, to bless the work that we're trying to accomplish, Father. If it be your will, you're always in charge here. We're not, and we acknowledge that today. Thank you for the gift of your son, the greatest gift we have ever received. In Jesus' name, amen.